Exclusive Books Homebrew is a celebration of the diversity that is local writing, covering fresh perspectives on history, sharing never-told-before personal stories, challenging established views, and excavating the trough of political policy. Exclusive Books Homebrew. Not the same old story. Today's episode of Homebrew is presented by author, journalist, and fearsome cruciverbalist, Jonathan Anser. Ochat, from a hoe into a housewife and then some, is Shana Fife's raw, unsettling, unapologetic, authentic, painful, no-holds-barred memoir about growing up a coloured woman on the Cape Flats. It's brutal and brutally honest as Shana brings to light dark secrets and deep traumas of her past, of not belonging, of an unwanted pregnancy, an abortion, another pregnancy, shunned for being a single mother to two children, depression and despair. At the heart of Shana's story is Lyle, the man who abused her physically, emotionally and sexually. When you read Ochat, you'll wish it was fiction. There are times when you want to reach into the pages of the book to place a protective arm around Shana. But it's not a pity book. It's a book by a woman who has found her voice. Ochat is a story of survival, except Shana doesn't call herself a survivor. She hates the S word. Because, she writes, it's a word that makes other people feel better and it creates the impression that people can emerge from abuse unscathed. But while Shana is healing and the scars of the past are still part of her life, she has made it through the violence to escape the cycle of abuse. Ochat is a brave and powerful book. Welcome to the Homebrew Podcast, Shana. Please, can you read us an extract from Ochat? Yes, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> Chapter 2, A Brief Her Story. To really understand why I ended up tied by the vagina to a cretin from the underworld, I need to look at where I come from. As a young woman, I aspired to be like the unhappy but married women in my circle. There were exceptions like fun aunties and independent cousins, but I remember mostly pitying the women who hadn't been lucky enough to find a man to tame them. From a peripheral view, viewpoint as a child, it seemed that married women looked at single women with a mixture of disgust, pity and jealousy. Very confusing for my newly emerging sense of self. I had a sponge for a mind and it soaked up every sentiment expressed by the people I was told to look up to or else. Observing from my low angle, I was aware that men and boys were exempt from common decency and that even though boys will be boys and women were nurturers, matured faster and were fixers, men were destined to rule. It made sense, but it didn't, but it did. As a child, I was privy to the interesting dynamic between boys and girls and men and women that only Cape colored kids will understand. You only need to attend one wedding at the civic center and see the women anxiously waiting for mediocre, drunk men to ask them to jazz to understand the entirety of heterosexuality in my community. But like I said, admitting that I was aware of anything above my age level or expected chastity level would mean that I was fast and forward. I preferred to dumb myself down to the point of pretending to be shy about trivial things rather than let people know I had found my own vagina and that I thought they at even 20 years older than me, were fucking stupid. Even as a seven-year-old, I noticed the disparities between men and women. 
but I knew very well I was to keep my observations to myself no matter how accurate they were. There was a certain way I was to behave, or I would be in the eyes. In my very first memory of my extended family in our woodland home, my mother's brothers and sisters and their children were all gathered to celebrate my grandparents' 50th anniversary. My cousin Louie and I were the youngest children of my mom's daughters. Apparently that was significant to these old farts, so it was our duty, or our honour, to present my grandparents with a gift, a box-shaped colour TV. Everyone was so excited at the idea of presenting this monstrosity to them. Like with any coloured affair that needed planning and coordination, everyone was also angry. My family doesn't do well under pressure. Every emotion can somehow slide into anger. Regardless, after the half-assed speeches and an awkward pause for me and my cousin to unveil the gift, I remember hearing my uncle mutter a drunken, like Louis de Coopmark, the boy. I honestly had no idea what that meant. Even my baby brain knew that there was no logical link between the two sentences. Why should Louis open it? Just because he was the boy. But everyone else seemed to understand, leaving me doubting my own judgment. After an anticlimactic unveiling, it was time for the food. I cannot remember what was on the menu, but I am willing to bet it was biryani and chicken something. It was always chicken something. And let me tell you, the dishing up always went the exact same way. The women would spend hours in the kitchen cleaning and cooking and preparing treats while the men did something enjoyable in the other parts of the house. Whether the men indulged in a sports match, on TV, or sat and had a few drinks in the yard, they were always having a good time while they waited for food. Once the food was prepared and laid out on the table, the women would stand back as the men were given first pickings of the dishes. Latimant's men's escape. Men dished up first. This was the rule. And on the odd occasion that a woman was in the front of the line, she was probably dishing up for her incapacitated husband. Following the meals, women would hurriedly excuse themselves from the dining table to make their way to the kitchen again. This time to clean and pack away the dishes and leftovers and to make way for the cakes and tea that they would prepare as the men recovered from a hard day's work of doing absolutely fuck. Wow. Shana, in the book, you write that recalling secrets is taxing and that memories crept up on you. What was it like writing from your younger self's perspective and how did you remain true to your memory? It was both difficult and freeing at the same time. There's a lot of of things that tried to come to the fore before I started writing Ogat, but I sort of pushed them away. You know, you can like physically almost push something to the side and, and think to yourself, ah, I'll think about that later when I'm stronger or emotionally ready or whatever, and then you never quite address it. It got to the point while I was writing where I got physically ill. I actually had to take a week off. I went to the doctor because my side of my face and my shoulders and my neck, my right side pulled stuff. She said to me, there's nothing physically wrong with you. This is a stress response. Whatever I was reading or writing and reading back my own work was causing me physical pain. And I found that very interesting. And now I sort of, it's also changed how I move forward with if anything happens that affects me, I sort of deal with it first because I don't want to feel half paralyzed by these feelings 10 years from now. So it was a, a difficult thing, but also I feel so much better after getting it out. I'm by no means through all of it, but being able to work through it now and having it sort of have come out 
I feel much lighter. But where did you find the courage to be so open about your life? So I always I always get this question and, and people say I'm brave and that it was courageous. And I can understand that viewpoint. But to me, I got to such a low point where because I've I've been blogging about my life for a couple of years now before Ohat came out and it's sort of the same subject matter, just Ohat is a bit deeper. I don't see it as courageous. I think the truth is that my self-esteem and my, my self-worth was so minimum. I stopped caring what people thought of me and I just wanted to get it out. I think it, it comes from a place of tiredness instead of courage. Also seeing the same cycle happen to a lot of women of color that I encounter all the time. And no one says anything. Everybody knows there's a problem. Everybody experiences the problem, but nobody's willing to speak about the problem. And I think that's where, where it came from for me to just lay it all out. And putting your life out there and sharing personal details about yourself, what is that like? <laughs> In the beginning, it was easy. Like I said, I didn't care what people thought. It was at the point where no one, no one liked me anyway. Everybody thought I was, I hate this word, but you know, trash anyway. But now it did change. It, it does get more difficult. I think the better the place I am in, the less I want to share with people. And it just automatically sort of happens. But people are respectful, I must say. I do encounter some, some people who, you know, which I understand they feel like they know me on, on a personal level because they've, they've maybe read my work. And so some boundaries get crossed. But in general... A lot of the people I encounter who have read my story and have followed me for years are quite respectful and I, I don't feel I don't feel exposed. I feel like I've shared, but I don't feel like I'm being judged or exposed in any way. You mentioned that you had hit rock bottom and you took to your keyboard and it was in a in a way a bit to purge the abuse through writing. And your blog posts notched up a hell of a lot of readers, the result of which is Ohat. So writing in, a, in that sense was cathartic, but now the book is out and you are invited to share your story and you do share your story. Is that sharing part of the healing process or does it feel in a way re-traumatizing having to go through the, the story again and again? Sometimes it can be re-traumatizing. As an example, I have not read Ohat in its entirety since it was published. I've tried and it does feel sometimes like when I get to certain parts that I'm reliving that moment and my stomach tenses and I get a little bit anxious and I have to remind myself, you know, of the reality that I'm outside of it. I'm looking from the outside now. So the writing was part of, of the healing and stuff, but reliving it is, <laughs> it depends also on where I am emotionally and mentally on that day. Some days mm. I'm a little bit more, more vulnerable than others. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all dependent on, on where I am on that day. But a lot of the time, it does sort of feel like I'm really loving the stuff. You dropped some very personal bombshells in the book. And I guess that people who knew you or know you will be reading some of the things about you for the first time. And yeah. I'm just wondering how they responded. So you mean people I'm close to, like my family and my friends? Your and family, stuff? your mother. So my mom hasn't read it. A lot of close members haven't read it, and I understand that. I think a lot, but nobody likes to read about themselves or the thing that, that other people think they did wrong. <laughs> right? That's just yeah. my opinion, but that, that's what it seems like. I do have family members who are upset with me about certain truths that I revealed, whether it was about myself or members or mutual family members. But I, I've had to explain that my story and my feelings and my truth are valid, and it took me yeah. a long time to believe that. And I, I maintain that 
if it means that they don't like me, but my my nieces and my my nephews and the future generations and my children go into their younger childhood with more knowledge and understanding of our culture than I did, and it damages them less, then I'm okay to be the villain. Because people have villainized me, where even though I feel like, you know, I was the victim of a lot of situations, even though I think I also do understand my responsibility and the roles I played. I was not, I'm not always the good guy. Sometimes I'm the bad guy. Sometimes things are my fault. But yeah, I, um, not a lot of people were happy. Some applauded me. Some said they're proud of me. Some said they stand by me regardless of the backlash. But most of it, if I'm going to be honest, from people who were close to me was not very positive. And Lyle's family, have you heard from them since the book was published? His mother congratulated me. I still have a good relationship with his mom. I have always maintained that she is my daughter's grandma and therefore she's my family. The rest of his family is not too fond of me, but for many years, since my blog came out, I was told by family and friends of their family that speaking out was was wrong. But also, not to be harsh, but... They loved was a perpetrator and they knew and also beat me up. So I, I don't care whether they like the book or not. I feel like that's their journey. That's their thing to deal with. You have three children and they have significant roles in the book. And at some point when they're old enough, I'm guessing they will be curious and they will want to read it. What do you think they'll make of it? So my son has started reading it. Well, he attempted it. He picked it up and he asked me if it's okay. And of course, I said, yes, of course, you know, I feel like if you think you're ready, then who am I to tell you not to? And then he got to the first part where I speak about discovering my sexuality. And then he said, this book is weird and put it down. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, then, and he asked me, what's wrong with you, mom? And then he put it down. So I was so, I don't know, I think that it would be the most difficult read for my middle child, for Lyle's daughter. Mm. Although I am always honest with my children. So I think it will be okay for my son because he lived through a lot of what I speak about. He has memories of me being attacked or harassed and, you know, various other things and being left alone with my my mom and my my dad um, while I was missing. He remembers me being gone. And my, my youngest child, this for her, is completely detached from her life. I think she'll find it interesting, but I think the challenge will come when Syria discovers it, depending on where she is in her life. And then I know there'll be a lot of questions that I need to answer more in depth. Because right now she just knows the basics, because she's seven. And Sydney, how, he's must be about 11 or 12. He's 11 years old, yes. 11. He's on his way to yeah. 12. And his biological father, has he read the book and responded in any way? I don't know if he's read it, but he hasn't responded. We okay. are not in contact. Who do you think should read the book? Everyone, but everyone in Cape Town. If, like, if I had to choose a particular demographic, I don't even think it's a particular race. Just Cape Town people. And I say people and not women because I want men to know the other mm. side of the experience. Um, Cape Town people, people who grew up on the flats or in the, in the southern or northern suburbs, or whatever, I feel like it is a story that you can come across at every second or third house. I know a lot of women who are from different parts of Cape Town who I've never encountered, who don't have the same family or friends as me, who have messaged me and said they have fully experienced these feelings, these thoughts. So 
I think that Capetonians should read it. I think we have a very mixed, we have a very eclectic culture. All of us sort of meshed, whether you're white, black, colored, Indian, doesn't matter. There is this intersection where we all experience the same feelings and things. And so particularly when it comes to relationships between men and women and marriage and religion and the uneven dynamic between men and women in these relationships, in these heterosexual relationships. So I'd say straight Cape Town should read it. And what do you hope the book will achieve? Just, I just want them to know what this particular story is like. I haven't read many colored girl stories, like published books on the colored girl experience, specifically the colored girl experience. I just think it will give them perspective. I don't want to be too like racial or political, any of those things. But the truth of the matter is that the colored identity is not as spoken about or as understood as other cultural identities in South Africa. And I also think that the Cape colored is villainized. Our aesthetic is always the gangster or the slut or the person that has the drug problem that you shouldn't take note of, <laughs> whether it's in a sitcom or in a, a series or even just books about us, like, you know, just short stories about us, adverts. We always have a specific aesthetic. I want to humanize that aesthetic. I want people to be like, oh, this is the feelings thoughts, experiences of the Cape Colored woman. I noticed that you write and you drift in and out of slang and all sorts of very colorful language. How was that writing process? <laughs> so I do that because I think that we, a lot of the time, people in the, in the book writing slash literary space value a savor language like an English or an Afrikaans very highly. And that seems to be a show of intelligence, right? But that's not my language. And as much as I'm a writer and I, I operate mostly in English in my professional life, when I speak or when I tell my stories without writing, I speak in cups or sort of offspring of cups. It's more English cups than Afrikaans, but it's still cups. <laughs> and I wanted that to be part of my book and how I wrote it because I wanted to tell my story authentically. So the, the, the process of doing that was pretty simple. I just put it down like I would say it. Uh, it's actually very easy to read. It's a difficult read, but it's an easy read, if, if that makes sense. I understand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and one last question. What became of Barbara's GHD flat iron? <laughs> <laughs> so the flat iron story... I never saw her again. So a few people have asked me about that. <laughs> Honestly, I hope she makes contact with me. I will super replace the flat iron. But <laughs> I think I, I think I gave it to my mom at one point because I showed her for my my mother had no idea it was a stolen property. But yeah, I, I've never heard from her again. <laughs> I don't even remember exactly where our house is. So I can't like go be like I I stole your PhD ten years ago. <laughs> I, I was wondering whether she would read the book and then put two and two together and um <laughs> Ohat, From a Hoe into a Housewife and then some, is a compelling, insightful, unrestrained and powerful memoir from a gifted writer and a courageous woman, even if she doesn't think she is. She is. <laughs> Thank you, Shana. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. That was the final episode of this season of the Exclusive Books Homebrew podcast series a series of poignant interviews with courageous authors who have shared with us their stories about whistleblowing, gender-bending, ceiling-busting, stereotype-breaking, business-booming, goal-scoring lives. Those authors made us cry and laugh, and most of all, they made us think. 
If you missed any of the interviews or want to listen again to a favorite episode, search for Homebrew Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.